Our gracious Heavenly Father, you are so good. You are so faithful. Even when we are faithless, you remain faithful, for you cannot deny yourself. You are worthy of our praises and of our adoration. And even now, Lord, we know that when we come to your word, it is the main event because we get to hear from you and what you would have to say to us about your awesome character and what that means for us as your people, your redeemed. I pray that, Lord, you would bless this time. Help us to have worshipful hearts and that that worship would be manifested in the way that we hear your word attentively and our teachability and our humility and the way that we receive your word. And that, Lord, by your spirit, Lord, I pray that today you would challenge us to be different people concerning this issue and topic of mercy in the local church. I pray that you would, Lord, quicken the hearts of those who are spiritually dead this morning. Lord, those who need to turn from their sin and put their faith in Jesus as their only hope of forgiveness of their sins and of, Lord, acquittal from your wrath. Lord, I pray that you would save people this morning as well. We ask you all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, uh, we are concluding, believe it or not, our series uh, this morning on the Calvary Distinctives. And let's see if we could uh, do our little quiz again, okay? Let's see if you remember the first seven Calvary Distinctives that we've covered in the last couple of months. What was distinctive number one? That's right, a Bible-centered church. Secondly, a Christ-exalting church. Thirdly, a God-dependent church, right? Fourthly, a love-expressing church. Fifth, a worship-motivated church. Sixth, service-oriented church. Seventh, mission-focused church, right? Amen. That's great. We're going to be giving out free Starbucks cards after, so just come to the front if you were able to. Uh, Just kidding. We're not going to do that. We wish we could, though, but... Yeah, thank you so much for um, just being so attentive to these Calvary distinctives. And today we look at one, uh, Calvary distinctive number eight, a mercy-promoting church. We want to be all the more here at Calvary Bible Church, a mercy-promoting church. And perhaps you may um, have seen this, seen the, uh, the title of this morning out front uh, during the week, and you're wondering, or maybe via or your computer, email, or whatever, and you've wondered, why a mercy-promoting church? Why this particular distinctive of all of the things that we can be discussing as a church on a Sunday morning, why this one in particular? Probably not because you don't consider it valuable, but maybe because that doesn't really stand out in, in local churches that you would actually set aside a, prior, a biblical priority like mercy in a local church. I think that's a valid question and wondering. Um, What do we mean by mercy anyway? Might be the opening question that we might ask ourselves. What do we mean by mercy? Certainly some of us can define mercy in particular ways. Um, Maybe acts of compassion for other people. And that is a broad, that could be broadly expressed to all kinds of people. Anybody could be the recipient of mercy. Um, Over the years, I've found a couple of wonderful, wonderful definitions of mercy. And one of them goes like this. God's mercy is His tender-hearted, loving compassion for His people. Specifically, His tenderness of heart toward the needy and helpless. If grace contemplates humans as sinful, guilty, and condemned, 
mercy sees them as helpless and needy, end quote. Notice, the recipients of mercy, as we are going to see even biblically, are those who are helpless and needy. And we know that in the gospel, all of us could be described that way, right? We were all helpless and needy. Charles Hodge said this, Mercy is kindness exercised toward the helpless and includes pity, compassion, forbearance, and gentleness, which the scriptures so abundantly ascribe to God. End quote. So notice, broadly speaking, everyone is a recipient of mercy. Everyone can be the object of mercy. But we're talking about something even more pinpointed this morning, more specific that we are talking about. We're talking about those who are to be the recipients of mercy, those who from a human standpoint, from the eye of the beholder, us here in the context of the local church, for example, may look upon people and often neglect certain people and overlook certain people. They receive very little of our attention. Because maybe, in a passive sort of way, we don't consider the fact that they should be the special objects of our mercy and of our tenderness and of our pity. And we're going to see this more extensively in a little bit. You know, the importance of mercy in the context of the local church was first impressed upon me through a a, a ministry that I was a part of for a number of years before I came to Calvary Bible Church. And in this ministry, I was just exposed to the, to the beauty of helping churches, local churches local, uh, in America here and internationally, focus on coming alongside of churches for effective gospel compassion mercy ministry. And equipping them to do that theologically as well as just practically. How do you display mercy and tenderness and compassion toward people within the church and then in your local community? And I saw some amazing things. I saw churches and leaders grow in their care for, for a category of people that we might say are the least of these amongst us. People that we often overlook, beloved. People that, that not, we, we're, not, we're not naturally prone to want to spend time with and to care for and extend a loving, gracious hand toward. And I got to see this in a beautiful way. But it was through that ministry as well, and in previous year, prior years to working in that ministry, that I, I was exposed to the plethora of biblical instruction of the care that we should have in the local church for the needy and the helpless amongst us. First and foremost, in the local church, and in very deliberate and purposeful cases, to those outside of the church, the unbeliever, for the sake of the gospel. And there's a plethora of biblical evidence concerning our need to have this tender pity and compassion and manifest that in merciful acts out of the local church. So more than this ministry that I was a part of, it was my personal observation from Scripture itself that the church had largely ceased to care for its own as it should. Did you hear that? The local churches, Bible-centered, Bible-teaching churches, many who were conservative, had outright neglected and acquiesced their God-given responsibility to care for the needy and the helpless amongst them. Primarily believers. 
their own Christian brethren. And I was scratching my head over the years, wondering and being convicted in my own heart why it is that I would overlook certain people in the church who are even believers, who are helpless and needy amongst us, and yet we don't express love toward them with merciful care. Why? How could it be that churches, conservative churches, where we hold up the Bible as our final rule of faith and practice, yet we ignore the biblical instructions to care for the needy and the helpless amongst us? How could that be? I kept asking myself. And I was convicted of that in my own life, of how neglectful I could be. And what I found in many cases and interacting with many leaders and local churches was that this was generally an overreaction to the gospel movement, uh, the social gospel movement, that historically had compromised in many cases, outright abandoned the gospel for the sake of social action. And so many conservative churches then overreact and, and do a pendulum swing, and now there is no care for the needy because that would be the social gospel, especially as it pertains to caring or performing merciful acts towards those outside of the church, the unbelievers. We don't want to be about the social gospel, and it's understandable. The social gospel movement was troubling because oftentimes over the last decades, um, they, mis- they, they, they made the mistake of, of uh, equating the gospel to social action, as if social action is the gospel. We know that social action is not the gospel, right? The gospel is content, content concerning the holiness of God and the person and the work of Jesus Christ and our sinfulness before a holy God and our need to respond in obedient repentance and faith toward the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the gospel. But the gospel, beloved, there are social implications in the church and outside of the church for the gospel. Amen? So we have to draw that distinction. So I I totally understood and I get it why many churches were gun shy in the sense about practicing mercy ministry, first of all, with believers within the local church. And yet even so, it grieves my heart over the years that we ignore the plethora of biblical support in the area of what we might call mercy ministries in the local church. It grieves my heart and it should grieve your heart as well. The most important question, of course, for you and for I, in a Bible-centered church like Calvary Bible Church, is this. Is there a biblical basis for mercy ministry in the local church? That is the question that we need to answer, right? We don't want to just be driven by movements and programs and structures for structure's sake. We want to be driven by the Word of God, right? And submit ourselves to what God says, and I would submit to you that there are, there's a, a plethora, the scriptures are replete with instructions and principles for us to care for the needy. First and foremost, believers within the household of the faith, and then as an extension of the gospel for gospel progress, for the proclamation of the gospel outside of the local church. There's a plethora of instructions and principles. And I really want us to hang our thoughts on three foundational pillars this morning which give biblical support for mercy care in and through the local church. Three foundational pillars, and I'm going to give them to you up front, okay? One is the heart of God the Father. The heart of God the Father. Two, the heart of Christ. The heart of Christ. And three, what is to be the heart of the church. What is to be the heart of the church. And as we look at these three foundational pillars upon which we want to hang our our thoughts 
um, we are really wanting to answer two questions, okay? One, as I've already stated, is there a biblical basis for the practice of mercy care, what you might call mercy ministry, in the local church? And two, what are the implications then for the practice of mercy ministry in the local church? What are those implications? What does that look like in the context of the local church? Who are, what are those categories of people that we ought to be especially going out of our way to care for in the church. Everybody should be recipients of our care. We should be mutually practicing the one another's. But who are those, those, what are those categories of people in the local church that we often overlook and we ought not to, beloved? Who are those people? So first of all, the heart of God the Father. The heart of God the Father. And I want you to go to Exodus 33. Exodus 33. Like with anything, everything begins with the character of God. And the Old Testament has much to say about God's heart of mercy and His heart of compassion toward the most helpless and needy in society. And the Old Testament, God has revealed Himself amongst many things in His infinite glory as a God of mercy and a God of compassion. And I want you to see this in Exodus 33 and 34 here. If you remember, shortly before this context in Exodus 33... The nation had rebelled against God. Moses, when he came down with the first set of tablets uh, containing the law of God, they had been worshiping the, the calf, if you remember. And God wanted to punish his people and judge them on the spot. And Moses intercedes for them. And God relents from the fullness of, of his wrath upon them at that moment. And yet Moses, or God, even though he had forgiven the people, he had relented from his judgment at that moment. God told Moses that his presence wouldn't be with them as before. And Moses does not want to lead the people into the promised land if God is not with him, if God is not with the nation. So he wants assurance that God will be with them because if God is not with them, they're going to be just common like every other nation. So look at Exodus 33 and verse 14. And God said, My presence shall go with you, and I will give you rest Then he said to him, if your presence does not go with us, do not lead us up from here, says Moses. For how can then it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not by your doing with us, so that we, by your going with us, so that we, I and your people, may be distinguished from all the other people who are upon the face of the earth? Verse 17, and the Lord said to Moses, I will also do this thing of which you have spoken, for you have found favor in my sight, and I have known you by name. And then Moses has a special request of God. Notice in verse 18, then Moses said, I pray you, show me your glory. I want to see you. The glory of God is the sum of the infinite perfections of God. He wants to see God more clearly. Show me your glory. Verse 19, and he said, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim the name of the Lord before you and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And notice, I will show what? What, beloved? Compassion on whom I will show compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face for no man can see me and live. God is many things in His infinite glory and perfections, but He highlights His goodness here and the fact that He's gracious and that He is compassionate. And of course, it is His divine prerogative who He shows compassion to. Look at chapter 34 and verse 6. 
God answers the prayer of Moses. And the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression and sin. Yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. And I can't tell you how many times I've heard pastors or theologians lecture or teach on this passage and really zero in because they don't want people to feel like they're going to get away with their sin. Really zero in in the middle of verse 7 and talk about the justice of God, that God doesn't allow anybody to get away with their sin. And God is holy and God is just. And we should highlight that as one of his infinite perfections, right? But they bypass the middle of verse 6 and the beginning of verse 7. How God reveals Himself as the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth. Loving kindness is God's steadfast, loyal, covenant-keeping love. He's compassionate and gracious. He keeps loving kindness for thousands and forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. So how does God reveal Himself, beloved? To Moses, He reveals Himself in His infinite glory as gracious, as good, as compassionate. That's how He reveals Himself. God is a God of compassion. God is a merciful God, is He not? The reason why mercy exists, beloved, is because God is merciful. And in fact, this is what He continually brought before the nation of Israel, that they needed to obey Him and love Him in light of the fact that He had shown mercy and compassion to them in delivering them from the land of Egypt and had chosen them to be His special people. He highlights over and over again His graciousness and His goodness and His compassion and His mercy. And then, flowing from that mercy, God's expectation was that that mercy would be expressed by Israel. Think about it. The nation of Israel was not chosen by God because they were worthy of being chosen, right? Was there anything special about that nation? Absolutely not. It was God's choosing and divine prerogative. In comparison to the other nations, they were just as bad as other nations. It was based upon a promise to one man, and God, through that man, blessed him by adding multitudes of people. But there was nothing special about them. They were sinners just like you and I. They were chosen, beloved, listen, to be a light to the other nations around them. To be God's image bearers to other pagan nations around them. To display the glory of God to those pagan nations. To, to lift up and high the name of Yahweh Almighty to the other nations around them. They were chosen to display His glory and even their obedience to the law of God. And them manifesting holy and righteous character to the nations around them was to display to the other nations love for God and God's infinite glory as well as listen. The way that a nation under God can learn to love their neighbor and be merciful and gracious to their neighbor. So there was nothing unique about the nation. They were to be God's image bearers. And one of the ways that they were to do that is to display mercy toward one another in light of the mercy that God had displayed toward them in delivering them from Egypt. Be merciful just as your father is merciful, right? That was really the call to the nation. 
And you know, I find it so interesting that we often focus upon God's judgment of Israel. And we highlight the fact that God judged Israel in the Old Testament because of their idolatry. And that is absolutely true. God judged Israel in the Old Testament because they were an idolatrous people. In fact, God commanded them, you shall have no other gods before me. And that is continually what they did, right? They went away from God and they were idolatrous. But we often overlook too, beloved, this. God didn't only judge the nation of Israel because of their idolatry. He also judged them because as as an act flowing from their idolatry, they failed to practice mercy and justice. And they were not many times a gracious community, a community full of compassion for one another and loving their neighbor as they ought to. Flowing from his divine character, God had instructed Moses not only to abstain from idolatry, but also to show mercy and compassion to others, beloved. And I want you to see this. You're already there in Exodus. Turn back a few pages to Exodus 22. Exodus 22. And verse 20. Notice in these instructions here. Exodus 22 and verse 20. He who sacrifices to any God other than to the Lord alone shall be utterly destroyed. Pretty clear, right? He's giving them instructions. Do not give your allegiance to any other God. You shall have no other gods before me. It's reminiscent of that commandment. But then notice in verse 21. You shall not wrong a stranger or oppress him. For you were strangers in the land of Egypt. You shall not afflict any widow or orphan. If you afflict him at all, and if he does cry out to me, I will surely hear his cry. And my anger will be kindled, and I will kill you with the sword. And your wives shall become widows, and your children fatherless. Notice. It wasn't just idolatry and going at, sacrificing to other gods that displeased the Lord utterly. It was also their lack of displaying, showing mercy and justice and grace to those who were the helpless and the needy, such as the stranger, such as the widow, such as the orphan, as an act of the character of God. Many passages, beloved, like this one, Talk about the fact that we ought to be merciful people. And specifically, for the nation, they needed to display mercy toward one another. Look at Exodus chapter 23 and verse 6. You shall not pervert the justice due to your needy brother in his dispute. Keep far from a false charge and do not kill the innocent or the righteous, for I will not acquit the guilty. You shall not take a bribe, for a bribe blinds the clear-sighted and subverts the, ju- the cause of the just. You shall not oppress a stranger, that is a sojourner, a traveling person who would visit them. Since you yourselves know the feelings of a sojourner. For you also were strangers in the land of Egypt. Notice. In light of the fact that you, in your former manner of life, you understand what it's like to be a sojourner and a stranger, you need to treat the stranger and the sojourner accordingly with mercy and justice. In light of where they had come from. Look at Leviticus chapter 19 and verse 33. Leviticus 19 and verse 33. 
When a stranger resides with you in your land, you shall not do him wrong. The stranger who resides with you shall be to you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself. For you were aliens in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. You shall do no wrong in judgment, in measurement of weight or capacity. Verse 36, you shall have just balances, just weights, a just ephah and a just hin. I am the Lord your God who brought you out from the land of Egypt. You shall thus observe all my statutes and all my ordinances and do them. I am the Lord. Notice they were to show love to the stranger and the basis of their practice of justice and care for the stranger and for others who were helpless and needy was, I am the Lord your God. His character, who he is as the just God who extends mercy and compassion to others, right? Just as he had done to the nation of Israel when they were in Egypt. Notice Deuteronomy chapter 10. Over to your right, Deuteronomy chapter 10. And there is a plethora of scriptures, beloved, with regards to these instructions here. Deuteronomy chapter 10 and verse 16. This is Moses launching off on a series of sermons, getting the people prepared spiritually to learn from their past mistakes as they get it. They're getting ready to enter the land, the second generation of Israelites. And he wants them to be spiritually prepared. And in Deuteronomy 10, 16, he says this, So circumcise your heart and stiffen your neck no longer. For the Lord your God is the God of gods and is the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who... Excuse me who does not show partiality nor take a bribe. And listen to what kind of a God is he in verse 18. He executes justice for the orphan and the widow and shows his love for the alien by giving him food and clothing. In light of that, verse 19, So show your love for the alien, for you were aliens in the land of Egypt. Notice at the, at the end of verse 19, what is the basis for their love and, and care and concern for people like the alien and the orphan and the widow, people who are the most needy and helpless in society? It's that they were aliens in the land of Egypt too. And there are many, many more passages, beloved. Countless passages in the Old Testament speaking of this. You know, oftentimes... I hear people say that we should not, not read these passages in the law, in the Pentateuch, Genesis through Deuteronomy, as if they're applicable for us today. For we're no longer under the law. And I would say this, I would agree that many of the instructions given under the Mosaic law are not directly applicable to us today in light of Christ's coming. He fulfilled the whole law. That those who believe in Him have His perfect righteousness, including His obedience, His active obedience, His full obedience to the law of the Father. Uh, His righteousness by faith is accounted to us, reckoned to our account when we turn from our sins and we put our faith in Christ. I would agree that there are many laws here that are not applicable to us today. We're not under the law. Jesus has fulfilled all. He did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. But let's be careful that we not forget, beloved, that the law of Moses was reflective of something far deeper, far greater than commandments and laws for Israel alone. The law of Moses was a reflection of God's holy and perfect character, and it still is, isn't it? 
It still is. And while Jesus fulfilled the law perfectly, not abolished it, God's character, listen, God's character as revealed in His law is still the same. And flowing from His holy character as revealed in the Old Testament is His merciful concern for people, beginning with His chosen people of rebels called the Israelites. And while I don't believe that the Bible teaches that the church has replaced Israel or is the new spiritual Israel, I don't believe that. I do believe, however, that God is now manifesting His holy and perfect character through His church. Those who have been forgiven of their sins and reconciled to God by faith in Jesus Christ. Amen? Isn't that what countless scriptures in the New Testament talk about? That we as the redeemed are God's holy priesthood? We are a nation that is to display the righteousness of God in practice and the way that we love one another and the way that we pursue holiness. We are, we are little image bearers of God. Time and time again, beloved, my point is this, that in the Old Testament, God's chosen nation, Israel, was called by God to show to other people His glory by displaying the same mercy He had shown to them when He rescued them from slavery to Egypt. And in case they didn't take that seriously, God's judgment also came upon them because of their lack of compassion and mercy. You know what's interesting about God's judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah? In Genesis 19, we often focus upon the wickedness of Sodom and Gomorrah. They committed all these abominations, and God wiped them out, didn't He? But we focus on the idolatry and the abominations and the wickedness, but we don't often define that. And in Ezekiel chapter 16 and verse 48, I want you to listen to this. Why also did God wipe out Sodom and Gomorrah according to the prophet Ezekiel? Chapter 16, verse 48. As I live, declares the Lord God, Sodom, your sister and her daughters, have not done as you and your daughters have done. Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had arrogance, abundant food and careless ease, but she did not help the poor and needy. Verse 50, thus they were haughty and committed abominations before me. Therefore, I removed them when I saw it. Sodom and Gomorrah experienced the judgment of God because of their idolatry, no doubt, and their abominations. But part of those abominations and that wickedness, beloved, is the fact that they did not extend their hand to the needy and the helpless. They did not express mercy. The prophets, you see, never divided up issues of righteousness as neatly and as cookie-cut as we do in the personal and the social realms. The prophets often speak of God's judgment for there, the nation's lack of care for the needy and the helpless amongst them. And that was part and parcel of their idolatry because they failed to reflect the character of the one true God and became like the pagan nations around them, greedy and not pursuing care for the needy and the helpless. Amos, Amos, our brother Tim Carnes taught through the book of Amos. And it was amazing to hear these words in Amos chapter 2, verses 6 through 7. Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of Israel, and for four I will not revoke its punishment, because they sell the righteous for money and the needy for a pair of sandals. Amos 2, 7. These who pant after the very dust of the earth on the head of the helpless. 
Also turn aside the way of the humble. And a man and his father resort to the same girl in order to profane my holy name. They were not a holy people, beloved. And not only that, but their their lack of holiness showed itself in their exploitation of the needy and the helpless. And God judged them for it through the prophet Amos. Micah, chapter 6 and verses 6 through 8. Listen to this. With what shall I come to the Lord and bow myself before the God on high? Shall I come to Him with burnt offerings, with yearly calves? Does the Lord take delight in thousands of rams, in ten thousand rivers of oil? Shall I present my firstborn for my rebellious acts, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? And then verse 8 says this, He has told you, O man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you, but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. God doesn't want our sacrifices, beloved, devoid of heart and sincerity and genuine worship. And he was telling them the same thing. He wanted them to be holy from within, to practice holiness. And part of that was mercy and compassion toward the helpless and the needy around them. We get the point, right? Clearly, clearly, God's compassionate and merciful character is shown in the Old Testament, beloved. He is a merciful God, a gracious God who desires that His people care for the helpless, the needy, especially orphans and widows who fall under the most helpless people in society, who make up what we might call the least of these amongst us. It was as Israel cared for these people the helpless and the needy, that the God of Israel was shown to be most glorious to the nations around them. That they could love God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength and love one another, love their neighbor as themselves in the way that they expressed mercy. Now this is not just in the Old Testament, okay? It also is in the New Testament. And we see it in the heart of Christ. That's our second point, in the heart of Christ who displayed and expected the same kind of of mercy. And I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9. You know, it is very true during his earthly ministry, without question, Jesus' focus was on preaching and teaching concerning the kingdom of God, as we saw last week. Proclaiming the word of God was Jesus' concern. He was concerned that men would experience God's mercy on the deepest level by being delivered, saved from their sins. No doubt. But like his father, listen, like his father, Jesus showed the same genuine concern for humanity and heart of mercy throughout the Gospels. And that's what we see in his own ministry. And here in Matthew chapter 9, he is as busy as can be. Chapter 9 of Matthew verse 35 describes his ongoing relentless ministry. Jesus was going through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. And we might ask, why, Lord, why are you doing that? Is it just, you're just doing these things because you are just wanting to authenticate yourself and authenticate the kingdom of God being there present amongst them because the king is actually there? Yes. 
That is why he's doing these things. He's performing these, these attesting miracles and signs so that people could see the power of the king and that the kingdom was literally being offered to them. That is the primary reason why Jesus is displaying this kind of power, beloved. But it wasn't just that Jesus was going through the motions here, was he? Was he just doing miracles and healing disease and sicknesses just so that to put on a show externally? Look, look at verse 36. Seeing the people, he felt compassion for them. Tender pity, in other words. Anguish of heart. Compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. He had genuine compassion and distress for the wandering crowds, beloved, because they were spiritually lost and their external conditions were only indicative of a deeper spiritual problem that they had. They needed a shepherd and he was there before them. And in fact, Jesus tells his disciples in verse 37, the harvest is plentiful, plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. Jesus understood the deeper concern that their external problems and diseases and their, their infirmities were indicative of the ultimate problem called sin. And he was the only one that could solve that problem. So more workers needed to be prayed for so that they would go out and proclaim the gospel of the kingdom so that people could ultimately be delivered from those destructive infirmities as well, right? Jesus felt compassion. And that compassion drove him, beloved, to merciful, caring acts to meet physical, material needs as well. He cared for the needy and for the helpless and for the poor and for the sick. When you survey the gospel, you see Jesus, you find Jesus first and foremost preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God and authenticating himself and displaying genuine, authentic compassion and merciful acts towards people. That's what you find him doing. Jesus fed the hungry. His disciples looked at him and said, send them away. He said, you give them something to eat. Shouldn't Jesus have responded to the hungry cousin and just said, yeah, most of them here are not even authentically really following me. So yeah, they're just, they're just in it for what they can get out of it, right? Send them away. Is that what he did? What did he say? You feed them. And he wanted his disciples to recognize their lack, of, their lack of, of ability to do that. And so that they would look to the king who could provide for everybody at that moment, right? And manifest his glory in the feeding of the 4,000 and the feeding of the 5,000. More than seven or 8,000 people at a time with women and children, beloved. Jesus fed the hungry. And you say, why, Lord? Why did you feed that many people when not all of them would believe in you? It was because of this, beloved, because Jesus was genuinely merciful without conditions upon that mercy shown. Jesus healed people, did he not? Luke 7, verses 11 through 16. There's a widow whose only son dies. And when Jesus looks upon this woman, he sees her, and it says that he felt compassion for this widow and said to her, do not weep. And she raised his, her son, this widow's son, and gives him back to this widow. Jesus healed people. Listen, Jesus cared, beloved, for special needs people. People with particular special needs, particular infirmities, such as healing blind people. He healed lepers. He healed people who were paralyzed, who could not move. From birth, 
He healed poor people with withered hands. Jesus cared for special needs people. He didn't avoid them. He didn't look down upon them. He didn't view them as a burden. He engaged these people in a very personal, compassionate, tender, pity kind of way, beloved. And he displayed uh, amazing miracles in caring for those people. There are these and many other examples that show the compassion and the mercy of Jesus. Who, though he had unlimited power, could have ignored these and many other surface needs that he encountered, but he did not. And listen to me. He expected people, beginning with his disciples, to practice generosity and tender, merciful care for others as well, following after his example. One of the most frightening passages, and I still don't know how theologians just sweep it under the rug. In Matthew chapter 25, turn there. Jesus is talking about the day of judgment. This is probably one of the most, not probably, one of the most frightening passages in all of Scripture. Matthew chapter 25 and verse 31. But when the Son of Man comes in His glory, and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before Him, and He will separate them from one another. As the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats, and He will put the sheep on His right and the goats on the left, then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. Naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous, verse 37, will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty or give you something to drink? And when did we see you a stranger and invite you in or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? The king will answer and say to them, truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even to the least of them, you did it to me. Verse 41, then he will also say to those on his left, depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they themselves also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not take care of you? Then he will answer them, truly I say to you, to the extent that you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. These will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into life eternal. Notice. Jesus reminding his readers and us that our faith, beloved, in him should flesh itself out in a very active, operative way in the way that we love others, right? Isn't that John's point in 1 John? How do you say that you love me and you do not keep my commandments? 
How do you say you love God whom you have not seen and you hate your brother whom you've seen? And ultimately, John's point is, those are incompatible. Those are inconsistencies. Your faith will flesh itself out in the way that you love other people, the way that you display grace and mercy and compassion, beloved. Truly, they will know that we are Christians by our what? Our love. And the legs of that are compassion and mercy and grace towards others, fleshed out in loving acts, beloved, in the meeting of needs. Jesus' merciful character gushed out in the Gospels. He cared for people like widows and orphans and special needs people like paralytics and deaf and mute and crippled and so forth and so forth. Poor and destitute people who didn't have the, the appropriate amount of calories to just make it in life. Jesus fed people like that. He healed sick people. Peter's mother-in-law and others. Jesus was a merciful servant, Savior, beloved. He was He came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Did he not? That's what he did. Now, thirdly, if God the Father has a heart for the least of these amongst us, and the Lord Jesus the same, then what does the heart of God and the heart of Christ mean for the church? And that's our third point, the heart heart of the church. The heart of the church. As the church... We should show compassion in merciful acts because God has displayed His mercy toward us, right? Listen to 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9 that says this, But you, speaking to believers, but you are a chosen race. Notice these beautiful titles given to believers. A chosen race, a royal priesthood. We're children of the King. A holy nation. A people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Notice that. These, the, what is the reason for these beautiful Titles given to God's church, to believers, it is God's mercy, beloved. We did not deserve those titles, those privileges, those spiritual blessings. We are recipients of God's mercy. That's why we are here. I want you to turn to the book of Acts. Turn to the book of Acts, chapter 2. Because with the birth and development of the church, by the mercy of God... We quickly realize that the same merciful God revealed in the Old Testament, shown to us in the person of the eternal Son of God, expects His mercy to be reflected in and through His redeemed people, His church. And that's exactly what happened, beloved, as, a, as the, the fruit of the transforming power of the gospel in the early church. They were people who cared for one another, who were generous toward one another, who were merciful and compassionate for one another. Look at chapter 2 and verse 43 or verse 42. Peter had just preached a great sermon and many had repented, had turned from their sins and put their faith in Christ. And many, it says in verse 41, that those who had received his word were baptized and that day they were added about 3,000 souls. And notice what they devoted themselves to, verse 42. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. 
And all, and everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And notice verse 45. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Day by day, continually with one mind in the temple, breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. Notice as the fruit of of a transformed heart. They were devoting themselves to being together, to the teaching of the apostles, to fellowship, to communion. And there was a sense of awe that they were experiencing. And one of the things that characterized the early church, beloved, was the spirit of generosity. This wasn't communism, by the way. This wasn't forced. Everybody sell your property so that we all pick from one pot together. It wasn't forced that way. This was the the manifestation, the expression of gospel-transformed lives here. They wanted to meet needs. So even with their own property and with their own possessions, they were willing to sacrifice so that they might share and meet the needs of other people. Look at chapter 4. Chapter 4 and verse 32. We get a progress report here from Luke, the writer of Acts. Verse 32, And the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own, but all things were common property to them. And with great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And notice, an abundant grace was upon them all. And so notice, this is very key here. In light of the abundant grace upon them, notice verse 34, For there was not a needy person among them, for all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales and lay them at the apostles' feet, and they would be distributed to each as any had need. As people who had experienced the abundant grace of God, beloved, this was a gracious community of people who were generous and they were about helping one another. And meeting needs. They cared for one another. We can look at many other passages in the book of Acts. Listen. Mercy, beloved. Mercy begins specifically in our care for those within the household of the faith. If we learn from the heart of God for those who are the helpless and the needy, that he has a heart for people like that. If we learn from Jesus and the Gospels that we ought to have a heart for the helpless and for the needy and for the poor and for the destitute, then the church needs to manifest that first and foremost towards those of the household of the faith. Amen? Listen to Galatians chapter 6 and verse 10. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good unto all men. That is, doing good, he means... What is intrinsically beneficial for someone else. Doing good for someone else. Toward all men. But notice then he says, especially to those of the household of the faith. We ought to be committed and devoted as a church of God to doing good to all men, but especially to those of the household of the faith. Those who are believers. Other Christians who may be in need, beloved. We should be extending our mercy and our grace towards others as an expression of what God has done for us. Listen, 
While the primary mission of the church is undeniably that of making disciples through the preaching and sharing of the gospel, the necessary fruit of gospel-transformed living is purposeful mercy care for one another in the local church, especially for the needy and the helpless amongst us, beloved. Paul exhorts Titus in the book of Titus that God's people are to be devoted and zealous for good deeds, Titus 2.14. That God's people are to be engaging in good deeds to meet pressing needs, Titus 3, 8, and 14. And on the top of that list, at the forefront of doing those deeds, beloved, I would submit to you, by what we've seen in Scripture and the many other plethora of passages concerning the needy and the helpless, beginning with the household of the faith, as an expression of that, we ought to be performing acts of mercy toward those who from a human eye are deemed less worthy of our mercy and that we tend to overlook in the church. That's the kind of a church that we want to be, beloved. How does the heart of God, the heart of Christ, for mercy get fleshed out in the church? How does it get fleshed out in a very practical way? I have five minutes and I want to give you some practical implications, okay? First, if God cares for the helpless and needy, You and I need to be prayerfully mindful of the helpless and the needy amongst us, beloved. Mindful, aware, prayerfully of those around us who are in need of special loving concern, of our attention, who are helpless amongst us, who are in special need of care, like orphans and widows and the poor and the destitute, I know that that's a hard one because we are so rich in Burbank, aren't we? We have to be so careful because certain people can come in into the church and exploit the church. That's why we have to use wisdom and be deliberate and purposeful, right? That's why we have a benevolence team here of deacons who oversee that. We have to be careful. But let's not cop out of our responsibility to care for people who might be legitimately in need, right? Even in a material manner. The Old Testament scriptures, the Gospels, the epistles, the New Testament all tell us that God cares about the needs of people, especially His own redeemed. And He shows kindness to those, even people who are ungrateful. Are you mindful of those who are helpless and needy amongst us, beloved? What is your attitude toward those who require your special attention in this church? Do you tend to kind of just isolate yourself away from people like that? Special needs, widows, orphans, families who are, have a heart for foster care or orphan care in our church, in obedience to what they feel is their call? Are you, do you engage people in those particular helpless kinds of situations or in needy kinds of situations that way? We need to be mindful, right, of the helpless amongst us. If God cares for the helpless and needy, so should we. Secondly, God's word is clear that we then need to engage in practical mercy care for people like that. Engage. Not only be mindful, and I'm just going to pray for everybody in that situation because I'm a prayer warrior. No. Get your hands dirty too and look for opportunities to engage in the practical mercy care, beloved. And if you're not the best person to meet that need, find somebody who can, right? Engage in meeting those needs with practical care. Looking for opportunities to minister to those in difficult situations. Who are those people? Who are those people? Widows. 
True widows indeed, Paul calls them in 1 Timothy chapter 5. True, genuine widows, believing, faithful, devoted widows in the church who, listen, are especially vulnerable due to not having close or extended family who's willing or able to care for them. We need to be on the lookout for women like that in our church who are faithful women who are devoted to this church. They're committed to serving in this church and to praying for you and to serving and meeting needs. We need to be careful that we are not neglecting women like that. Amen? That we are caring for women like that, beloved. There are dear saints, these widows who have for years been faithful to this church. And they don't have people who are actually caring for them. Biological family who's really going out of their way, which is their biblical responsibility, by the way, for their family to care for them first. But if they can't, or their, their, their family is not doing so, it is the church's responsibility to do that in a prayerful, deliberate, purposeful manner. Right? And there are other widows that may be in in a situation where maybe family members are caring for them. Even in those cases, beloved, we should take note of these widows who are in special need of our attention. So widows, indeed true widows, who have no people really going out of their way from their family caring for them, as as, as well as other widows who are still women, who at this stage of life have special needs. And the church is called to come alongside of faithful, holy women of God who are devoted to the church that way. Listen, orphans. James 1.27 says this. James 1.27 Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this. To visit orphans and widows in their distress... And to keep oneself unstained by the world. James is the the author that calls you to put your faith into action. And he says, what is pure and undefiled religion in the sight of God? The Father, it is this, to pursue holiness, keep yourself unstained by the world, and to be expressing compassion and mercy toward the most helpless people in society, namely orphans and widows. And I would say to us, our church in particular has a huge heart. Many individuals and families who have a heart for foster care or orphan care, they feel like this is their calling to bring little ones or older kids into their lives that way. Beloved, it is not just their calling. And so we just kind of throw our hands back and say, well, that's their calling. I don't have that calling. I'm not going to do anything then for them. How about prayer? How about coming alongside of families like that? How about coming alongside and adopting a child or adopting a young lady or a do- or, or, or one of these little girls and bringing them along with your family to care for them so that you're, so, you're a support to some of these families who have, who have chosen to bring in children who have a lot of baggage and while they are not a burden, they certainly have a lot of baggage and these families have made a choice to bring these kids into their home because of the fact that they want to care for orphans. And we as a church ought to be coming alongside of them. Elderly, elderly, on the top of the helpless and needy, who could be more of that than some of our elderly saints? I love what Dale and Esther are leading um, as far as the shut-in ministry of our church. Elderly saints who are no longer able to physically get here to church, they have a ministry that they lead and facilitate towards elderly saints, including shut-ins. Get involved, beloved, in those. Those are helpless individuals, but dear people who need for us not to abandon them where they're at, beloved. 
We should be displaying compassion and mercy to them. Imagine yourself one day being abandoned in some place and nobody ever visits you and yet you've devoted your, your life to a church, a body of Christians, and they, they're never around to, to, to visit you. You can tell that I feel strongly about this topic, right? Shut-in ministry, special needs. Special needs. Who are the most helpless and needy people? It's people with special disabilities amongst us and families that have them. These precious individuals carry special burdens in their families which come from their physical situation and condition. How necessary, beloved, it is for us to pay close attention to those needs and not stare and give glares and things like that, but to be sensitive to those individuals and to their families and come alongside of them on a case-by-case basis or continual basis to care for individuals like that and their families as well and to be praying for them, right? Can I add one more? Single mothers. Single mothers. Women who are faithful in this church, who for one reason or another are single parents. We can't begin to understand, beloved, what it must be like to be a single parent, right? Some of us have experienced that. Others of us have no clue. It's hard enough raising your kids with two of you, right? They, they experience unique challenges. And there are uh, problems that come with this. How are we coming alongside with special care and evaluation, coming alongside of those believing moms, single moms amongst us, in a way where we care for them and we provide counseling? And maybe we adopt their child into our family to reach out to them instead of rejecting them and treating them as outcasts. Let's be careful, beloved. Let's be careful. Third, third and final, the practice of mercy ministry should always be for gospel progress. Okay? For gospel progress. One, have a mindset of being aware of those who are helpless and needy amongst us. Second implication, flesh out, engage in practical care for those categories that I just went through. And thirdly, remember that it's always ultimately for the progress of the gospel. Even our ministry to believers in these special cases and these categories. As we come alongside of these believers and their families, listen, these people, these believers are encouraged in their Christian walk as disciples, beloved. And they look to God who has extended his mercy and his compassion through his people. And they feel all the more encouraged and all the more close to God who is very mindful of them through his people, right? Gospel progresses in their life. And then secondly, for the sake of opportunities for gospel progress to those outside of the church, we should be looking for those opportunities. I love what Pastor Carnes has led us this year and some other brothers into, the Serving Samaria Project, where fellowship groups have adopted one of those Serving Samaria ministries, ministries that we've supported for years from the missions ministry here, to come alongside of them as fellowship groups and to care for these ministries. You know why? For gospel progress. That's, those are mercy ministries for gospel progress, beloved. We don't work with ministries that are not about the gospel, that are not preaching the gospel. We don't want to do that. But we also recognize that there are real needs that these people have, and we want our body engaged for the progress of the gospel. Mercy ministry must begin with those within the church. It is facilitated by deacons, yes, who are service facilitators. But beloved, it is all of our job to promote a culture of mercy in our church. We are a mercy-promoting church. And I pray that we might give heed to Matthew 5, 7, that says, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive, what? Mercy. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, O Lord, 
We thank you for your grace and for your mercy and for your compassion shown to us. Who are we, Lord? I don't deserve that from you. None of us in here do. And yet, you have extended your grace and your mercy and your compassion through your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to us. And you continue to do it even as believers, as your church, as you're redeemed. You continue to show us provision for all of our needs, even above and beyond the basic needs of life. Oh, Lord, help us to not be a stingy people. Help us to be a generous flock, a generous church, who, Lord, first and foremost, in obedience to Galatians 6.10, is about doing good to those within the household of the faith for the progress of the gospel in their lives, especially those who are needy amongst us and those in those categories that are so clear, clearly delineated in your word as the objects of your special mercy and care and tender pity. Help us, Lord, to manifest your character in the way that we care for them as well. And to look for those opportunities outside of the church to unbelievers. Whereby, Lord, we can express the love of Christ, Lord, and meet a surface need that, Lord, by your grace, you may provide opportunities for them to come to know you and be saved from their sins. We ask you all of these things, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.